This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening, you're listening to 3RRR. This is Plato's Cave, a film criticism show. And tonight, my name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined, as I often am, by Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard, and our current guest host, Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Good evening to you all. Very good evening to you, Thomas. Hello. Good evening. (laughs) Tonight, we're going to be discussing... It's a big show tonight. We're going to be discussing Leviathan, the much-anticipated new film by Russian writer-director Andrei Zaviagintsev. I practice so many times. <laughs> Alex, can you help me out? Zvia Gidsev. Brilliant. That is the name of the director of Leviathan. Then after we that, we're going to Belfast, Northern Ireland during the Troubles for the action thriller drama 71. And then we're going to be taking a look at a classic film that's recently screened at the Alliance Francaise French Film Festival and has also recently been made available on DVD in Australia. This film is the 1937 Prisoners of War drama Grand Illusion by Jean Renoir. Looking forward to discussing an old classic later on the show tonight. But we're going to start off with Leviathan. Well, Leviathan is one of those films that, at the end of the day, it's as good as everybody is saying it is. Um, I think when a film is this unanimously praised, I confess I find myself poised to look for negatives. I always go in kind of secretly gunning for it to fail in some way so I can say, ha-ha, and I can be the the clever detective who who secretly uncovers (laughs) a bad film where everybody else has thought it's a great one. Not in this case. Leviathan is a remarkable collision between the macro and the micro and the personal and the public. Uh, Films like The Return, The Banishment and Eleanor have previously shown what Zvea Gensev is capable of doing, but his directorial superpowers for me really come to the fore here. He's basically juggling quite massive mythic mythic themes with the nuance of individual experience and not small ideological issues to boot. He's got a rare skill. He, He does this quite remarkable feat so confidently and so powerfully um, certainly it's understandable why I, th- I think he's pretty much earned himself a reputation as one of the most important Russian filmmakers working at the moment if not European um, I, I, I'm, I have no qualms with that I am qualmless, I am bereft of the faculty of qualms <laughs> on the Zvayaginsev front the film follows Kolya, played by Alexei Serebriakov an old friend of his from the army, Dmitri comes down from Moscow to the coastal town that Kolya lives in to uh, he's a lawyer, he's a big shot lawyer, and he comes down to help Collier with a legal claim. Uh, the mayor, the local mayor, the local government are trying to seize Collier's land and house uh, for what appear to be, for all intents and purposes, pretty corrupt motives. Um, Dimitri initially thinks that he's got a handle on the mayor and things are looking optimistic. But uh, Dimitri and uh, Collier's wife get involved in a little bit of sauciness and it basically just spirals down from there, I think is fair to say. It's a bit of an understatement. Um, that's, that's when things really really get difficult in a quite a diabolical way. Now, Zvea Gintsev's focus in the film is very much um, on the human drama. It, this sort of emotional relationship factor really underscores the film. But as the name suggests, there's much more epic things at stake in this movie. Uh, a lot of people have pointed out the relationship to the Old Testament story of Naboth's vineyard, um, but the title itself, of course, links to the book of Job, deals with the same questions of innocence, suffering and power, the eternal question, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, I, I really liked the way in this film that there's a real tension in the way 
that allegory is deployed. It's at times very overt and at times very restrained. Uh, quite a complex feat that uh, Zweigensev accomplishes here by doing this. One of my favourite scenes in the movie is that there's a bunch of guys, it's not a spoiler, there's a bunch of guys standing around shooting stuff up as guys are prone to do and a minor character comes in with a big pile of framed photographs of um, historical Russian leaders. So there's Gorbachev and Lenin and Kolya says to him, do you have anybody more recent? And he's, without missing a beat, the guy answers, no, look, it's too soon, it's too fresh. We need to let them ripen before we can shoot them down. Just amazing, really funny in a really, really dark way. It's so self-aware, this film. Um, the elephant in the room, of course, is, is Putin. Um, this film is just gunning for Putin, which I believe was its original title. I don't know what <laughs> the Russian for gunning yeah. for Putin is. But it's a scathing attack mm. on, on life in contemporary Russia under Putin's rule. I don't think that... I think you'd be really struggling to think of this film in any other way. Um, it's very careful in its scathingness, though, I think. It's really conscious. Not surprisingly. It, and it lets you know that it's conscious of it, and it lets you know that it's careful, and it's it's quite a remarkable balance. I am I'm really thought when I was watching this film, because it never sacrifices the personal drama for these much bigger issues, and it, it, it's this constant tension, this constant dance, almost like a choreography between these factors, and I thought a lot while I was watching this of the famous Carol Hanish feminist war cry, the personal is the political, which I think would pretty much be a tag tagline for this movie if Carol Hanish hadn't grabbed it already. <laughs> you know, 35% of the funding for this film came from Russia's Ministry of Culture, and I think... Uh-oh. Yeah, whoops. <laughs> and uh, I think never again, in all likelihood. Because, um, yes, it is... It, it is clever. It, it has a, it's a very subversive film in that, yes, Putin is definitely in the firing line, even though he's not. Um, but, yeah, there, there's a lot here that is um, microcosmic uh, for, for the state of play in Russia today. It's uh, like this town, Collier's Place, it's the one beautiful spot in that whole uh, landscape that we had shown in this film. The rest of it is blighted terribly by just god-awful communist architecture. Um, and uh, not not just you know, just that prefab uh, apartment block stuff. It's, it's grim. Uh, we I don't know. If we, do we see blue sky at all in this? We see lovely beach, which well, would be lovely were the, the, the sun ever to shine upon it. I think, and were there not an enormous whale carcass parked on it as well, just to reinforce that whole leviathan thing that's uh, running throughout the film. It is a spectacularly good film. It's entirely gripping. You've got a whole bunch of masculinity and crisis stuff thrown in there for good measure. Uh, the men folk in this are not sober often. Uh, even if they are notionally of a good heart and a good nature, they're still extremely flawed, all of them. Uh, and, um, yeah, look, life's grim, even even before that downward spiral is really embarked upon things are already a, a bit bleak there's so much just simmering under the surface and you know when it boils over it's going to be very unpleasant for all concerned i think one, one of the questions this film is grappling with is what comes first a corrupt government and um and, and culture or a fairly pathetic um uh, society, because you do have all these people who are just so drunk and so, so so messy. And I mean, that scene where they're drinking, they've got machine guns, and there are children around is absolutely terrifying to to, to watch. Um, and and just the casual attitude towards domestic violence that's throughout this film. Um, and so I think it is asking: Is it the the populace that allow themselves to be dictated to by these kind of so overtly ridiculously corrupt and obnoxious? 
power figures, or does it happen the other way around? You know, the authoritarian regime comes in and reduces these people um, to sort of these kind of fairly sibling hopeless types. And it, it, it's, it's actually quite a deep, dark question to ask. I think it goes a little bit both ways. And I don't know, we can look at some of that in our own culture here in Australia as well. It's quite confronting in that way. Um, just the notion of death, too, and the, the sense of decay, whether it's those whales' carcasses or the, um, or, or the boats that look like giant rib cages, you know, this sort of... This, this old ideal of what Russia is, is dying, and um, this new kind of sort of very rigorous, aggressive form of capitalism and modernity has come in to sort of quash the spirits of the, 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 the populace. And, you know, my heart bleeds for, for Russia. It's, just, it's been over 100 years now. Whatever form of um, authority they've had running those people, it's been awful. And they've had pretty much everything happen to them. Every form of social control has been inflicted on that country and it's all turned out awful. Um, the allegory of Putin is, is so vivid. I mean, the mayor has that big poster, a big uh, portrait of Putin in his, in his office. It's quite clear. In prime position, yeah. In prime position. And also the involvement of the Orthodox Greek, uh, Orthodox Russian church, rather, and um, how they manipulate from the sidelines. And there's even a scene in this film where we see a pussy riot uh, news report on television, which again reminds us of what the counterculture in Russia is fighting against. And yeah, I did love that scene where the, um, the, the, the priest confronted Collier and told him all about Job, which has the, the Leviathan figure in it, and sort of does this kind of, you know, why did the righteous suffer? And, it, you know, the Coen brothers, a serious man, dealt with this issue really well too, this kind of biblical idea that even if you live a good life, you can suffer horribly. The, 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 the stinging, bitter twist in Leviathan is it's not some random fate that these people are suffering. It's because the mayor and his, his cohorts and the church uh, are so horribly corrupt and making their life miserable. It, it made me so angry in a really wonderful way, you know, a real connecting with the film way in that scene. Yeah, the bureaucracy is ferocious in this too, and there's an absolutely remarkable scene in the courtroom where this uh-huh. woman delivers this lightning fast but seemingly interminable uh, litany mm. of uh, oh God, God knows what. It's all psycho babble, uh, legalese babble. It's it just gets babble. very I'm so glad that you mentioned it? that yeah. because the, the film really is bookended by two scenes that are like that, where there are these courtroom. Um, soliloquies that are in monotone and I couldn't, they're so bleak and they really both uh, are very directly related to the action that defines the film and all I could think of when I was watching them was um, of the economics teacher from Ferris Bueller Day Off. It was yeah. like the dark side to the voodoo, Ferris Bueller. Uh-huh. Bueller, Bueller. Yeah. It was it was that kind of monotone, and they never ended. They were it was funny in a really in a horrific manner. I mean, yeah, it is, it's way. completely robotic, robotic and dehumanized. I mean, and you're right the way it's bookended by that. I mean, the film is bookended in a number of ways. The film opens with the that mythic, epic sort of shots of the natural landscape with the sweeping score like the the score that demands to tell the audience this is an epic story this is a mythical tale yeah um and ends in in the similar way but what you have is this systematic dehumanization and this sense of the loss of myths the loss of the warmth i mean one of the places that we see um collier's son sort of sneak off to at various points in the narrative is the old sort of ruined church in which young men huddle around a kind of a, a warm fire i mean it's one of the only times we get a sense of that glow of warmth that's not cast in a kind of a cold light of blue 
And, of course, we have the church reappear in a different guise later on in the film. And, again, like you mentioned, Thomas, we have the, the whale bones on, on the beach and we have a moment where um, Lilia, the, the wife of Collier, sees uh, a whale in a, quite a, in a really poignant moment. In fact, it's probably the most poignant moment in the film. And it's interesting in the context of Leviathan that you have these, these natural, like the, the earthiness of the boats that are rotting like the, the whale bones. And at the end, all of that earthiness, all of that kind of sense of a- ancestry and that lineage of the past and that rural area that kind of the history of that is taken over by this well it's the it's the mechanical leviathan it's this horrific mechanical object of destruction which is filmed in in kind of remarkable way which is completely monstrous to exaggerate the sense of this monstrous beast which is not the mythical beasts of the of the sea but something very very much cruel and and dehumanized and robotic and yet beautiful this film is so exquisitely Mm -hmm. shot and very classically composed there's no shaky cam or anything uh flashy it's just beautiful uh all the more i think to bring out the the ghastliness of what's being depicted it's no um flash for flash's sake it's just pure storytelling it's something that really harkens back to the the russian greats of yesteryear uh whether we're talking tarkovsky or i suppose more recently sokhorov as well tarkovsky's Mm. here apparent not apparent anymore. Well, it's very apparent. Visible. Yeah, evident. Definitely. Um, but, yeah. It's, it's, that psychological landscape, the, the yeah. environment reflects what the characters are going through. But, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's important to stress this. It's a beautiful film, and it's it's really compelling to watch. It doesn't feel like hard work. I mean, it, this is a rewarding experience. Yes. It was also nice to see a Russian a Russian story, a Russian narrative that's told outside of the urban environment. I'm so, I, I feel like when I think of Russian cinema, contemporary cinema, I feel like I'm, I'm in Moscow or I'm in some sort of urban communist kind of... You know, the, the drab um, architecture you were talking before about Cerise. I feel like those are the stories, or those are the stories and the films that I've I'm become so used to. It's so nice to have something removed from that type of landscape. And yet it's still a, 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 it's not exactly the nicest landscape to inhabit. Uh, and what, what, what beauty there was to be found there of, of the, uh, at least the man-made variety is, as we sense, not long for this world. It's a troubled, troubled land indeed. It is. That's a leviathan. And speaking of troubles, we've got plenty of them on tonight's show, actually. We've got heavy themes in all the films that we're talking about tonight. Uh, So coming up in just a moment, we'll be looking at the film 71. You're listening to Plato's Cave. This is 3RRR 102.7 FM. 3RRR. This is Plato's Cave with Alex, Josh, Cerise. I am Thomas. We're going to have a look now at 71. Josh. Yeah, so 71 is from director Jan Demange. I believe it's his featured directorial debut. He seems to have worked primarily in television and directing episodes of Dead Set, the Charlie Brooker TV show, and Secret Diary of a Call Girl. Interestingly, this is about a British soldier in 1971... He's fresh-faced, he's just been trained very early on in the film, and rather than being shipped to Berlin, where he seems to be expecting to go, he and his brigade are shipped to Belfast, 1971. And the crux of the story really uh, occurs very early on. He is on his first assignment, and through an unfortunate accident, he's abandoned, him and another soldier are abandoned by their brigade on the, let's just say, hostile streets of Belfast, in the right in the epicentre of the... Um, look, I hate using the term troubles. I find it a really offensive term because it, it actually underplays the bloodshed that was actually really going on, at the, ti- on the, at the time. Maybe that's a separate issue we can come back to. But what I really like about this film, and I think this is a super exciting film, is in some ways that you have a, 
a genre setup. Um, soldier behind en- enemy lines, and he basically has to survive the night. And that's one of my favourite narrative plot devices. It's there in uh, Escape from New York. It's there in The Warriors. I think it's such a clever, um, a clever plot device because of the way in which it creates a sense of drama. But what impressed me about this film is it's not just an action thriller that uses a political historical context to kind of give a se- greater sense of complexity. It, it actually really uses the historical and political context of the time to and, and weaves that into the narrative in, in a quite a clever way in terms of the way in which it uses space. So the character here, the, the lead character played by Jack O'Connell, in his attempts to survive the night, keeps encountering the various factions, I guess, I think it's probably the best way of describing them, within, within Belfast in 1971. And this is what I like about this film, is it doesn't create a neat divide between British and Irish, between Catholic and Protestant. What we get is a series of factions along or across the lines of intergenerational conflict, between factions within a conflict, say the IRA, we get the Ulster Militia, we have the British Army, we have the British Secret Service. And what we get, this sense of this almost disorienting sense of, of Belfast Belfast is and, and his experience of it across the course of one night is just how complex this issue was, this conflict was across those political, socio-political lines, and it's and it's really well executed. This is a film that's slick, it's stylish, it's got a really great score. I think there's an incredibly clever use of colour. Most of the film, which takes place at night, is a wash in drab oranges browns and khaki it's almost like someone took the irish flag and says let's make this dirty let's turn the irish flag into the color palette of this film but let's kind of create a spin on it and i think it's interesting and maybe we can come back to this the way in which it toys with color in the kind of the, the final stages of this film i'm i'm ready to make a pretty big announcement here i think that watching 71 i came to the conclusion that i'm actually quite happy to pretty much just rubber stamp anything that warp films are involved in just give it a free pass the last couple of years basically some of the best films from britain that i've seen and loved have warp have been involved in so chris morris's four lions barbarian sound studio kill list i think warp films australia were involved in snowtown I mean, this is England. I was also one of theirs. Let's I think just do stable. it. Let's yeah. just call it. I mean, it's Warp Films. It's great. I'm I'm ready. Yeah, I'm, the, I'm, the I'm evidence ready to make is there, call. isn't it? I mean, yeah. um, I all I really knew about this director was was Dead Set, and um, which is the zombie Big Brother. Uh, I think it was a six part TV series. As you said, it was a Charlie Brooker project, and I I wasn't a, well, I wasn't a big fan of Dead Set. I thought it was a great concept, but it didn't really work stretched over the six. The first episode was great, but it didn't really carry. So I was a little bit apprehensive about seeing how um, the director would go with a feature film, and and I was wrong to doubt him. Um, I was really quite impressed with Seventy One. I was really struck. Everything that that's that I thought I was going to have an issue with, it dealt with in such a uh, intelligent and shrewd kind of way. I have a real red flag when it comes to films, whether that whether you call them a war film or a film set in a in a conflict where children are heavily involved in the narrative. I think it's a really lazy trope. I think it's easy sentimentality. It's just melodrama, and um, Seventy One has a lot of children in it, and it avoids that completely because he the director just refuses to let them be two dimensional bobbleheads that adults can fetishize their own politics onto the the young cast in this film I thought were remarkable probably if if not stronger at least as strong as the adult cast I I really like the ethical murkiness of this film that that um, very much gets into the meat of the of the trauma 
um, that comes out of this kind of civil violent civil unrest. It reminded me a lot. I know that thematically it's very different, but it actually reminded me a lot of the Red Riding trilogy, which is set much later. I think that's 74 to 83, and that focuses on the uh, period around when the Yorkshire Ripper was active. But something about the, the heaviness and that sense of dread and inevitability, there was something about 71 that really shared that that same feeling with me mm, that's a great uh, yeah, series excellent. of they're, they're, they're made for tv films there were mm-hmm. three of them the red riding trilogy sean bean uh yeah sean Bourne. Oh, uh, Seen bean. sure and paddy, paddy considine paddy considine and what's his name Spider-Man. andrew garfield andrew garfield is one of his first <laughs> roles he wasn't spider-man <laughs> yes yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be, yeah the yeah. early years just um yeah i'd love to revisit that but uh, but 71 um Focus yeah, I, I think I'm just going to reiterate everything you've both said. I think this is an extraordinarily strong film, and it it works so effectively. If you want, you could strip away all politics, and it works so effectively as an action thriller. Like, it's real nail-biting, exciting stuff. I must confess, for the first ten minutes, I was a bit glazed over, feeling this is all a bit familiar. But when it gets going, it does not let go. And this director does some remarkable stuff with handheld camera, with extended long takes that take us into the action, creating an, an enormous uh, uh, sense of energy, excitement and, and anxiety about what's what's going to happen. Uh, it reminded me a lot of the films of um, Paul Greengrass, who one of his very first films, if not his first maybe, was Bloody Sunday, which was about the 1972 shootings of Irish protesters. And, and he went on to make two of the Bourne films and Captain Phillips. And he made what I think is a really underrated film called Green Zone, which it's a film starring Matt Damon um, set in Iraq. And it... Again, it's sort of an action thriller set in a war but really looks at the politics that were involved. So Green Zone explored the issue that these Americans were being sent on missions based on lies and, and false reporting and it was extraordinarily critical of what the Americans were doing in Iraq. And so you, you, similarly in here, the politics are really embedded and I think it does represent the complexity so well. It represents the fact that these were mostly civilians who were sort of forced to take up arms and horrible mistakes occurred. I mean, one of the most dramatic moments in this film and it happens and you're searching for meaning you're searching for a way of explaining or you're waiting for a scene to say no this was done by this person they double crossed this it was just a screw up a horrible accident happens and it's it's an amazingly powerful scene in the film that um is really difficult uh, to shake off and yeah i love the narrative too about um Look, it's a di- you know it's it's the Odyssey. It's home is the Odyssey. Somebody away from home, lost behind enemy lines, trying to get back, finding, meeting all these uh, you know interesting characters who may help or hinder him as he fights to get back home. And it was really curious that this kind of central sympathetic character was an English soldier. And I remember we spoke about this probably about this time last year, Josh, when we looked at the film Good Vibrations. Yep. So the film all about um, record producer Terry Hooley, because it's with the same actor. It's um, Richard Dormer, who has a role in here. Yeah, really? Okay, I, I missed that detail. But there's a moment in Good Vibrations when they encounter English soldiers and they're presented as a very sympathetic, almost neutral element who, who are quite helpful. I don't know, I'm, I'm, it, it makes me think that, you know, were these soldiers just kind of babes in the woods, sort of sacrificial lambs served up by the government to go and clean up the mess and they were just getting mowed down because you really get a sense that these young, and they are boys, um, were just way out of their depth and were not meant to be there, but they were put there by government forces. And that is another theme of this film, that, that there are higher powers at play in these kind of conflicts who are happy to sacrifice lives for, for whatever economic or petty political reasons they're trying to exploit. 
I think that's an area where these types of films can still be critical. The resonance and the echoes and the, the trauma of the troubles are still living on and it's still very fresh mm. and raw. And I don't think there's been that many films or television shows that have been willing to take a side to actually stand up and criticize one side quite vocally but i think where these types of films and televisions can do it is by looking at the government so as if to sort of sideline some of the atrocities that were committed by soldiers and say look you know the the soldiers are the sympathetic people and it's the kind of the puppet masters up above and this is where i think this film manages to be critical but in a way that's not quite as simplistic as i've seen other films do it and i think that's where you get the multi-layered kind of intergenerational aspects that is not all that common for these types of narrative. It's because it's so convenient to kind of divide the troubles into, you know, into Catholic and Protestant or British and, and Irish. Mm. And this film at least plays with that. And, and the, the, the incident you mentioned earlier um, in terms of the kind of the violence, the stuff up, I like that while it, it plays with the, this is a, an accident, but it has significant ramifications because people don't take it necessarily as an accident and then make decisions on the basis of that. And again, that sort of just taps back into this idea of Belfast as this maelstrom of disorientation and, and there is no kind of stable moment. And I, I'm also really glad you mentioned Greengrass because that occurred to me as well, particularly in terms of the way in which Demange uses violence and, or, or, or doesn't show violence at particular points. And there's two other moments where we get a violent and they're sudden and they're shocking and I think it's important that you I guess create a cinematic space that allows that as opposed to just sort of desensitising the audience to massive shootings and stabbings and so on, it kind of indulging the, the, the sensationalist aspects of that and I don't think this, this film does that even though, like you mentioned, it works very much on the level of a genre action thriller. Yeah, but it makes you feel the deaths, like there's no sort of deaths by the side, there's no kind of bystanders or extras dressed as villains getting shot every person who dies in this film is a significant heartfelt tragic moment and 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 you know, those gunshots they're just those kind of you know l- loudish pops which is kind of what guns do do sound like that there's no kind of cool sound effects making any, nothing about this is cool it's just ugly and brutal what really moved me with this film was that that um that aspect of of, of how violence was addressed also carries through to to non-violent action in the film um it very much I mean, so much of the meaning and the impact of this movie to me is permeated through the images as much as it, as it is through, through narrative or character. There's a scene very early on in the film and it's such a small moment. It's a nothing moment. It wouldn't be anything on a script, really, uh, where the soldiers arrive on a, uh, in a residential street and it's the first real kind of conflict that we see, I think, from memory. And almost like uh, like a dance, like a kind of a musical. All of the women, the housewives, will pour out onto the street and they get their rubbish bin lids and they all start banging the ground with their rubbish bin. This unspoken alarm system goes off and it rocked me. It rocked me as much as some of the more graphic violence in the film in a funny way and, and I can't quite articulate why but there was something about that perhaps in relation to the more macro political aspects that you guys were talking about, about you know the, the puppet masters pulling the strings, that there's this... Um, these movements, these sort of ebbs and flows amongst the community about how they respond to to these quite quite beautiful and quite tragic at the same time, really 
had just had such a huge impact on me. There's a few other moments where we get references or moments or events that aren't, aren't explained, and I like that. There's a you know the, the lead um, soldier played by Jack O'Connell. There's a moment early on before he leaves where he says goodbye to a, a younger boy, and it's never explained. Is this a, a son? Is this a younger brother? Is this a foster brother? And I and I like that, and I think it, it's as opposed to drawing a clear parallel between oh he has a son and he's leaving leaving his son, and then he's going to meet a kind of a surrogate son over in Belfast. It, I thought that it, it, the film had the smarts to know when to show some restraint, to pull back and allow the audience to kind of do the work for it. And again, that's fairly rare in most run-of-the-mill action films. So yeah, this film was really exciting and the, uh, what I thought was a fairly ambiguous ending too, even with the, what you'd see are the tropes of the sort of the coming-of-age type narrative that we see in things like This Is England and there's a fairly kind of clear similarity in, in an action that takes place towards the very end. But even then with the, with the doubts and the kind of the ambiguous, what are the resonances and, and how is what this person experiences is going to kind of follow on for years to come? That's 71, which we've been discussing here on Plato's Cave. And speaking about conflict, shortly we're going to take a look at the 1937 film Grand Illusion, which is set during World War One. Three, triple, ah. Oh. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 R, and we're going to do what we haven't done for a little while, actually, and hope to do more of in the coming weeks, and let's look at a classic film that's recently been re-released on home entertainment here in Australia. And tonight we're going to look at Grand Illusion, or Le Grande Illusion, by Jean Renoir, 1937. A little bit of background. I, I'm not an expert on Renoir at all, so I was actually really happy to, to do a bit of research on him. He's a French filmmaker who made who began making silent films in France in the 1920s. After World War II, he relocated to Hollywood, and he made films well into the 1960s. He's best known for his 1930s work, though, films like uh, Boudou, Save from Drowning, Grand Illusion, and The Rules of the Game. Worked in lots of different genres. Um, he served in both World War One and Two, and his father was the impressionist painter Auguste Renoir. Uh, his films often contained um, a heavy social critique and satire. They were notable for their poetic realism. So that's the idea of realism as something constructed and, and stylized, both in terms of the narrative and, and the film style, as opposed to say that more documentary aesthetic that you often associate realism with. Grand Illusion is notable for being... It's notable for many reasons, one of which is it was at the time a huge success commercially and critically. Not all of his films were at the time, and it's still widely considered to be one of his all-time great films. In fact, if you do any research on this film, you'll discover that Orson Welles apparently repeatedly told people it was his favourite film. And look, it very much feels like a prototype for many films about war and depictions of war that were to come. There's a whole scene in this film where the French officers sing the the Marseillaise to enrage the, the Germans. And this predates an almost identical scene in Casablanca that would happen five years later. But most of all, Grand Illusion introduces all the conventions of the, the, the prisoner of war and escape from prison film, whether it's Starlag 17, uh, The Bridge on the River Kwai, even the television Hogan's heroes, I think, can look back at this. Most significant of all, though, is the 1963 film The Great Escape, which even uses the same tunnel-digging methods that you have in this film. 
So it's a film about um, the camaraderie between a group of French officers who are being held prisoner by uh, prisoners of war by the Germans. These officers are from a variety of class and social backgrounds, but they're all treated w- relatively well by the Germans because of their rank and nationality. In fact, one of them we discover is an aristocrat and actually knows many of the German elite command uh, socially through social interactions that predate the war. And it's a film that kind of focuses on their sort of civility and, and, and conversation and the way they treat each other, kind of almost ignoring the horrors of war that are there in the background. But the film does remind us of. So I suppose the illusion of the title stands for many things. The idea that it doesn't really mean anything to be French or German, that they're so similar to each other anyway. Um, uh, the, 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 the illusion in very many scenes where they tried to create their life back home, even though they're, they're not at all in the situation representing anything like pre-war, their pre-war lives. Uh, the illusion that there's going to be normality during the war at all. Um, and the illusion that war means anything. And also the illusion of human-made borders and national pride. And I think, before I throw it over to the others, I think this is the core point of interest about this film is the allegory. It was made in... It's about World War One, but it was made in 1937, where fascism was very much on the rise in Europe. The Nazi Party were in control of Germany. Um, World War Two wasn't too far away. The Holocaust wasn't too far away. And it, it's it's a film, I think, warning against fascism. Um, in particular, it's, it's interesting. It's a film that I think very cleverly looks at the difference between between patriotism and nationalism. It's quite proud of its French patriotism, but it's warning us about the violence of nationalism. There, you know, there's references to book burnings. There's, there's the beginning of the discussion about how uh, Jewish people are being looked down upon. I think my favourite scene, though, is when the, the French hear the, the, the Germans singing, and one says, does that bother you? And he says, it's not the singing that bothers me, it's, it's the sound of their boots marching. Um, it's almost a prophetic film in that way. Uh, look, it's a hell of a film. There's a reason this is a classic. It is. It is. It really feels like a prototype for so many other films, and it, on its own accord, it's one hell of a remarkable film. Yeah, one of the films it's a prototype for is the work of its assistant director, Jacques Becker, whose magnificent prison escape from The Hole finished off the Cinematheque calendar last year. And that uh, is a gobsmackingly good film and very realistic, whereas, as you say, Thomas, this does have something of the poetic realist tinge to it. It is a, a, a war film, but you could say an, an anti-war film. It, it sees the folly in, in war and yet uh, sort of romanticises it a little at the same time too in a... In a in the form of a lament, uh, the lament for when war was conducted by gentlemen, when, when chivalry somehow still reigned supreme over the, the battlefield and that the, uh, the captains and the, the, the elite would dine with one another even after one had captured the other or shot him down. And um, it, it seems almost laughable now when we know how even outside of uh, any conventional sense of warfare as we have today where we are... Uh, party to declaring wars on abstract ideas, whether it's drugs or terror or, or whatever else uh, is being hatched. Uh, um, it's 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 such a it, it's a bygone era that is being mourned. You could almost say, even though it is is veiled in in uh, with comedy here. Even it's, it's satirical, but there's a real gentleness to some of the comedy and and as you also mentioned Thomas there are so many illusions that this film is alluding to not least that this world war 1 which no one called it of course at the time but the great war 
that any notion that this would be the last one somehow, even though they have no idea how long it's going to go on for. And they're a little sceptical that it will finish soon, but it at least comes up in conversation once that this isn't going to be the end of this sort of thing because human beings are innately stupid. LAUGHTER um, but another little a little moment for me that is also speaks of illusions. This wonderful uh, pe- uh, sequence where they're p- getting ready to put on a theatrical show and they're rifling through a, a wonderful suitcase, uh, a, a huge coffer full of theatrical clothing, and someone dons drag, and the uh, both the uh, the French prisoners and the German guards are all just completely quiet, and it's uh, the whole room goes silent as somebody comes out looking very very feminine, and it's just a, a really beautiful. Uh, tribute to the power of illusion uh, to, to I think even these, these poor um, folks deprived of, of womanly favours in prison uh, it's, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous and actually really poignant moment The way that scene is, is constructed is wonderful because it begins with them grabbing the silk stockings and like taking all these garments one by one and and you can tell that in their mind they're conjuring this idea of woman the fantasy of, of yeah. woman and in fact the Jean Gabin character oh, I love Jean Gabin I think he's a miracle I think he's a, I think he's amazing and and no less in this either he says uh, the person who's dragging up is about to come out he says don't if we see you it'll ruin the illusion and the scene goes from this buoyant kind of funny moment that's played for laughs in a kind of a mid shot and then suddenly he exits and he's he's sort of talking to himself, the guy in drag, and saying, do I look funny? Do I look funny? And then we cut to almost a, a wide-angle shot, and there's just dead silence. And it's, yeah, it's one of a, a number of points in this film where you have the reference to illusion and the illusion being broken. And also, it's one of many scenes in this film that foreground the idea of performance and theatricality. We have one of the escape sequences that sort of rests on people playing flutes and various <laughs> yeah. other instruments, and when the flutes are taken away, by gee, we're going to bang, you know, tins and pots and pans. And I thought that was something quite fascinating about the way in which he kept coming back to this idea of performance, that somehow the war was just a kind of performance that was masking a lie or, or a truth that was, it, was, was in itself a, a fantasy. And even when we come to sort of two characters towards the end of the film, they reminded me of two sad clowns. Even even the type of um, uh, like three-day-old growth that one of them has is like the, the, all they needed was a kind of... All Jean Gabin needed was a big red nose and he would have been the sad clown. Almost in that um, like waiting for Godot kind of, you know, Vladimir and Estragon type of, of dynamic. And I thought this is this is so clever the way he's using and sticking to this theatricality to comment on more. And that's when we get that line that I think you were referring to, Cerise, where one of them says, we've got to end this damn war and make it the last one and the other one says what an illusion and I just think yeah wonderful film I haven't seen this film for a very very long time and I was really I love that you mentioned the stockings and this idea of the fabrics it, it's such a such a tactile film I mean it, it, there's so it's so beautiful to look at it's it's poetically realisming everywhere it's just in every crevice it's it's poetic realism a go-go it just is non-stop that being said I, I found it quite pertinent from a contemporary perspective this idea um, of a unified Europe this emphasis on a shared humanity and experience and a a kind of constant questioning of national boundaries Um, when you think about you know the contemporary global politics and the debates around uh, a unified Europe these are still a lot of really relevant issues that that really struck me re-watching it as a self-identifying pacifist um, uh, I think that it's fair to say that Renoir's politics is is pretty much drenched, you know, drenches the film. Um, but it's never preachy. It's never overwrought. There's none of that war is hell cliche, which is so refreshing. It's such a warm film. 
sort of unrelenting joy in these quite grim circumstances. Um, we, we certainly feel that with the camaraderie between the prisoners, but for me it really came to the fore uh, in the exchanges between von Stroheim and Fresne, uh, a really electric energy between these, uh, the French and German characters, these aristocrats that you mentioned before, Thomas. Mm. Um, when people talk about the legacy of this film, I think obviously you know, Casablanca, Great Escape, Stalag 17, these are the kinds of films that come up. I kept thinking, and this feeds especially into that last section with the two characters, I kept thinking of Robert Altman's MASH. Mm, I think that you could take... Mm-hmm. Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould. I mean, you'd have to wrestle away the golf clubs and the Hawaiian shirts, <laughs> but give them a little couple of French lessons and pop them down in the middle of 1937. Same thing. Yeah. And it's another film that's set during one war but commenting on another one. So, it is too. Yeah. Yeah, look, it informed... I, I thought of uh, Visconti's The Leopard in this film too, all that discussion amongst the aristocrats talking about, you know, their time is coming to an end and sort of accepting the fact that the world is changing and there is no room for them anymore. The, 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 those conversations between the aristocratic characters are really beautiful. And, and, and yeah, Eric von Stroheim looking extraordinary. Like, in, in any other film, he would have been the villain because apparently, you know, he's covered in burns and he wears gloves and he's got this very macabre-looking neck brace and he sort of walks around in a very jerky manner. And the film really makes us aware of his physicality. But it, he's not monstrous. He's somebody who has suffered because of, because of war and he's trying to go on with the illusion of, of civility. And what a, sorry, I was just to say, and what a tender moment between him and the, um, the, the French aristocrat at, towards... Oh, sorry, I'm not going to describe what yeah, happens. Well, but that made me think of heat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that kind of people uh, on different sides... It, the tragedy is they can't be best friends and have a bromance in real life. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's very bromantic. Uh, and von Stroheim was the go-to guy if you wanted a villainous Hun, even going back to silent-era Hollywood. And, and it, it, his casting in this is fascinating, not least, too, because he, he was... Um, Oh, he, he was almost persona non grata in Hollywood, at least definitely from the, the perspective of the director's chair, where he'd uh, been uh, the, the worst thing that possibly ever happened to MGM Studios, I think it was, where his film uh, Greed uh, went... It was one of the first of the films to ever go monstrously, monstrously over budget and be uh, way out of control and, and unfinished. And so seeing him here as this eminently sympathetic and yet still quite grotesque figure, is it, he's completely captivating and... Also, just um, all these people, uh, the, the actors as, of course, the characters, just effortlessly multilingual. And that's something we, we lose a lot in a lot of uh, Hollywood war films historically and currently where they still feel it necessary to give everyone their lines in English no matter... You know, it just robs a lot of richness to the exchanges. Except for one particular moment where we do have an exchange in English, which well, I thought was do. interesting for, yeah. for, you know, yeah, for that well, moment. Exactly for that reason, yeah. it's interesting. It's, it's, yeah. it's a very uh, overt commentary on the folly of only knowing one language, mm. that scene, isn't it? Yeah. Grand Illusion, Jean Renoir, 1937. There's a reason it's regarded as a masterpiece, uh, very much worth hunting down. It's widely available now in Australia. You've been listening to Plato's Cave with myself, Thomas Cordwell, and Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard, and Alexandra Heller Nicholas. We spoke about Leviathan. That's currently on limited release in cinemas through Palace Films. 71 is on a very limited release through Entertainment One. And Grand Illusion is available on DVD through Umbrella Entertainment. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au